Star Wars Rogue One comes out in two weeks. I'm super excited about it. I uh, understand that this movie goes back into the story of Star Wars, uh, the first Star Wars movie, and, which we later find out is actually the fourth Star Wars in the, in the story. And that story, of course, had all kinds of backstory to it as well, but we're going to discover in the new Star Wars that there's new characters, and they all have these interesting backstories and all of that. It'll be fun to kind of see how they weave this whole thing uh, together. And Star Wars, it's like its own world. It's its own universe. It's got its own narrative. It has its own prophecies. It has its own... Um, kind of storyline that spirals and spins, and you got all these people, and they got this thing and this connection here and all of that. And take Luke Skywalker, for example. Okay? Luke Skywalker, the son of who? I didn't know George Lucas was attending service today. <laughs> the son of Anakin Skywalker, and we come to find out that Anakin Skywalker has his own sort of story plot line, including a mysterious uh, birth and uh, prophecies about somebody that would unite the force. I know dualism, la la la, no letters this week, please, okay? Um, but uh, very interesting guy, and Last year, the movie The Force Awakens came out, and in The Force Awakens, we're introduced to a new character named Rey, and she is a very intriguing person. We don't know exactly what her story is, but if you get online and do a little bit of Googling, there's massive internet speculation about whose child she might be. Is she, because the, the movie ends with her handing a lightsaber to Luke Skywalker, who we haven't seen on the screen in Star Wars since the 90s. All of a sudden, there he is again. And so, you know, is, he her, is she his daughter, somebody else? What's the story? There's all these uh, conspiracies that are circling around about it. And, uh, you know, after all, the most famous line in all of Star Wars is, I am your father. That's right. So don't tell me that we modern types are not that interested in bloodlines and ancestry and family identities. Apparently, it just has to be somebody who's really important, like Luke Skywalker, a make-believe character in a make-believe universe created in Hollywood, the land of make-believe. Somebody like him, boy, we're really interested in his backstory. Well, how curious would you be about, let's just say, a person who was a real person, not a make-believe person? How interested would you be in a really important real person who lived in our own world, not a make-believe world, but lived in our own world, of whom ancient prophecies whispered, 
for whom world events strangely and mysteriously transpired, allowing those prophecies to be fulfilled regarding him. And a royal bloodline preserved mysteriously for a couple thousand years. Let's add to that, that if that bloodline was established to be true, he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Add to that, that you personally, every single person in this room, if he is the King of kings, you will personally stand before the glory of his presence, you will bow your knee, and you will acknowledge King of kings and Lord of lords. Okay? Now, is anybody interested like in his bloodline? Somebody interested in maybe what his backstory is? Anybody interested now? I hope so. And I'll tell you who was really, really interested. It was the Jewish world of the first century. Jesus of Nazareth, this guy, had exploded onto the scene, and he's doing miracles, he's doing teaching, people are seeing, you know, the blind can see, the deaf can hear, the lame can walk, that's happening right before their eyes, and it's always Jesus of Nazareth. And everybody's talking about him, everybody wants to be around him, he was the buzz that everybody was speaking about. And including the religious leaders who were so envious of him, hated him, used political trickery rivaling anything in our modern political world to have him murdered, to have him killed. But his disciples began running around saying, he's been resurrected from the dead. And got everybody talking again, wait a second, who is this Jesus of Nazareth? I mean, he did certain things, he said certain things, but if he's been raised from the dead, is it possible that he might be the Messiah? Like, okay, wait, wait, wait. For him to be the Messiah, we all know he's got to be son of son, son of this person, son of that. What's his story? What's the genealogy? What's the bloodline? Let's establish if maybe the claims that are being made are tied with somebody who has the genealogy promised, maybe we actually have the long-awaited Messiah. And that first century Jewish world exploded in interest over who Jesus was. And Matthew begins his gospel big. He goes for the juggler in verse 1. And he gets to Jesus' pedigree as a true son of Abraham and his rightful claim to the throne of King David. He just puts it out there right from the beginning. And so today we're looking at genealogy of a really important person that you are going to meet personally someday in all his glory. I wonder what his story is. Let's find out here. We're in Matthew chapter one, and uh, what's, what Matthew does is he just gets out a summary genealogy. Look at verse one. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. First verse in Matthew. Mark and Luke begin with John the Baptist. John begins with theology, but Matthew begins with genealogy, the genealogy of Jesus. And we often do the same thing. We maybe don't realize this, but we often begin with genealogy when we meet somebody because we say, so uh, what, what, what's your name? And that person says their name, or we say our name. This is my first name. This is my last name. Now, we don't call last name genealogy, but that's essentially what it is, right? I am of this family tree. 
I am of this tribe. This is my identity. I am Steve DeWitt. Now, this was a, actually a conversation that Jennifer and I had early in our, in our relationship. Um, and she's sitting right here as an as a eyewitness to what I'm saying here, that we talked early on, and I said to her, um, and I, here's my backstory. Okay, so DeWitt is Dutch. And in, in, I grew up Dutch. It was something we talked about. It was something that we were proud of. I know you're shocked to find that about Dutch people, that they're proud of their of their uh, heritage, but, um, you know, there, it, was, it was kind of a big deal, you know, growing up, being Dutch, and what that meant. So early, like maybe our first conversation, I can't remember, I said to Jennifer, I said, what's Terrell? That was her maiden name, Terrell. And she said, I don't know. <laughs> what do you mean you don't know? Like, how can you not know? And she went on to say, well, I, there's all these, you know, this strand and this strand, and there were so many different strands that it was just, you know, there was no one identity. So she just, I'm not even sure, I'm maybe a little this, little this, little this, little this, and that's about it. So we get married, she moves here to where there are a fair amount of Dutch people, and guess what Dutch people always want to ask, right? So what was your last name? What, what, what is your, what's your family? And she hears that all the time, okay? All the time. And now she's proud to be in a Dutch clan, by the way. <laughs> so I say all of that because in reality, you're all about genealogy as well. You do it almost every day. Every time you sign your name, you're doing genealogy. We all have a genealogy, and it's still important today, but it's not nearly as important as it was to the ancients, especially the Jews. The Jews scrupulously kept their family tree and could go back hundreds, maybe thousands of years and tell exactly who they came from. And they kept those records in the temple. They were lost in AD 70 when the Romans came in and destroyed the temple. All of those genealogies were lost. But there was a huge interest in genealogy. I think of like, uh, I understand the Mormons who are also into genealogy have, you know, buried in some mountain in Utah. They have all of these official records and and I think even you can get online and pay some amount of money and access their, their records about your genealogy. In the ancient world, your genealogy was your identity. It was your identity. So notice that Matthew doesn't beat around the bush in his gospel. He puts his main point right there in the first line. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ now, he is going to explain in verse 21 that Jesus was given the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. In fact, that's what Jesus means. His name means Savior. Okay? Christ is a hugely important title in the Jewish story in the Old Testament because for all of these years, all of these centuries, there was, in the prophecies, there were prophecies about somebody that was going to come and what his lineage and what his line would be. And he would be the Messiah. Messiah means anointed one, okay? Anointed one. Christ, Messiah, anointed one, all synonyms. So, for example, Isaiah 61. Isaiah prophesies this. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. 
In the Old Testament, when somebody became a prophet or they became a king, they would oftentimes anoint with oil that individual, and that anointing was a sign that he had been set apart for this particular task. He was the anointed one. He was the chosen one. He was the Messiah. And the Greek translates this, Christos, so maybe you've heard Jesus Christos, that's Jesus Christ in the Greek, English, obviously Jesus Christ is how we translate it. But what it really is saying is Savior Messiah, Savior Anointed One, right there in his name. The genealogy of Jesus Christ. Now remember that Matthew's entire purpose in his gospel he is writing primarily to a Jewish audience, and he is wanting to convince them that Jesus is the fulfillment not only of the Old Testament prophecy, but of the longing of the human heart. Here is the one that your heart has been looking for, longing for all of these years. His name is Jesus. And he has this fulfillment little um, thing that he does. If you read through Matthew, this was done to fulfill such and such. And he quotes from the Old Testament. And all of this is tied to a very royal and regal prophecies about the glory of the one who would come. And this gets to the second part of this summary, genealogy. He says he is Jesus, he is Christ, he is the son of David, and he is the son of Abraham. Now why are those two important? Son of David. Well, who is the most famous king in all of Israel's history? It is King David. And not only was he great as a king, but God made a very special promise to David known as the Davidic covenant. And there's, let me read one example here, 2 Samuel 7. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. How does a king have a throne forever? Like David, even the great King David, his throne wasn't forever. Why? Because he died. And all the other kings of Israel died. What kind of glorious person would it be required for him to have a throne that went on forever? Like who could do that? Who is he talking about here? Son of David. Secondly, son of Abraham. The entire Jewish nation finds its identity through Abraham. And God gave to Abraham a very special promise, okay? This is Genesis 22. I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and as the sand is on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in, here's the key. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Because you have obeyed my voice. All nations of the earth be blessed? Like, who's that talking about? A son of Abraham. Again, Jewish identity all flows through Abraham. He is the father of the nation of Israel. But there is one offspring that God says to Abraham, he is going to be so special. He is going to be so glorious that he will bless the entire World. How would an offspring of Abraham bless the entire world? Well, we find in the progression of revelation that God gives to us that the fullness of that promise would not take place until there was a manger in Bethlehem 
and a cross at Jerusalem. He is the son of Abraham. He is a Jew. He is the son of David. He is a king. So you can hear somebody hearing, reading this from Matthew and going, oh, okay, that's a fine claim to make, but show me the evidence. Like, I want to know, what's, what's, the, what's the bloodline here for Jesus? And we begin now in verse 2, and we believe all the Bible is inspired by God, including the genealogies. And I'm going to read all of these, okay? So follow along. Here's verse 2 as we get into what the royal genealogy is for Jesus. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz. Oh. Now that's sort of interesting. Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth. Ding, 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 ding. And Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. So, some obscure names in there, but you come across a couple where you're like, hey, I know that person. That person has a prominent role in the story. So he begins with Abraham. Okay, why do you start with Abraham? Because it's a Jewish gospel, and Abraham was the father of the nation. We begin with Abraham, and you see the patriarchs there, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Then you have these obscure names, and then you see Boaz and Ruth. And by the way, Ruth is one of four women that are listed here in this. We'll get into that in a moment. And then notice there's just three generations from Ruth and Boaz to King David himself. Now, notice the structure on the genealogy. If you're looking at your Bible, you see that uh, verses 1 through 6 are Abraham to David, And then you have 6 to 11, which is David to the deportation of Israel. And then verses 12 through 16 are uh, are uh, from the deportation to the birth of Christ. Okay, so let me keep reading now. Let's read now the kingly line. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon the father of Rehoboam. And Rehoboam the father of Abijah. And Abijah the father of Asaph. And Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat the father of Joram. And Joram the father of Uzziah. And Uzziah the father of Jotham. And Jotham the father of Ahaz. And Ahaz the father of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah the father of Manasseh. And Manasseh the father of Amos. And Amos the father of Josiah. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. Okay, so there you have a list of kings. This is a royal line. These names would have just popped for the Jews in the first century. They, know, they knew these names well. If you are an a Old Testament expert, you might look at that and say, hey, now wait a second, aren't there some names missing here? Like, is, is Matthew sort of whitewashing this and taking the embarrassing parts out? There's plenty of embarrassing that's included here. We'll get into that in a moment. What is going on here is that the word translated the father of, or the old King James, beget, can also be translated uh, the ancestor of. And the, the genealogies of this period did not require every single person that is in the tree to be listed. So they could skip, and that's what Matthew does here. Not everyone is listed. 
So let me continue now. This is from now the deportation to Jesus. And, and every one of these names is a name providentially by the sovereign hand of God in the genealogy of Jesus. And Zerubbabel, the father of Abiad, and Abiad, the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim, the father of Azar, and Azar, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Achim, and Achim, the father of Eliad, and Eliad, the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar, the father of Madden, and Madden, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Now this list here, lots of obscure names here. But notice what you see in verse 16. Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. Did you notice a little change in kind of that rhythm as I was reading it? Because all the other ones are this guy beget this guy, who beget this guy, who beget this guy. But then you get to Joseph, and it doesn't say beget. It says Joseph was the husband of Mary, and Mary is the one who gave birth to Christ. Why does Matthew do it? Why does he change that rhythm? What's going on here? This is Matthew subtly and implicitly teaching us about the virgin birth. Okay? Why didn't it say Joseph begat Jesus? Because Joseph didn't beget Jesus. Okay? And it says, Mary, of whom was born the Christ. And the whom there in the Greek, feminine. It can't apply to Joseph. It has to apply to Mary. So why, would, why wouldn't Matthew say Joseph the, the, the father of Jesus? Because he wasn't the father of Jesus. Not by bloodline. He became the father of Jesus by adoption. By adoption. He adopts Jesus as his own. He is a son of David by adoption. Now, some people try to make the case that Mary was also in the line of David, but it doesn't matter. Jesus was Joseph's legal son, but Joseph wasn't Jesus' physical father. Is it still adoption month? Because I could use certainly a highlight that. I think that was November. But Jesus was adopted. So we see here that Jesus was not conceived by the seed of man, but by the power of God. How did Mary become pregnant? By the, by the Holy Spirit. And that's part of the mystery, the miracle of the virgin birth. So yes, it's important that he's the son of David. Yes, it's important that he's the son of Abraham. But it is most important that he is the son of God. And you see the language here, Matthew, slightly altering in order to make that very important truth. And then Matthew concludes here by saying there were 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the deportation, and 14 from the deportation to Jesus himself. Now why does he do this? There's all kinds of ink spilled about why he makes this point. One of the interesting ones is that David's name, if you take the consonants and make them numbers... They add up to 14. Now, is that why? I don't know. Nobody really knows why. But what we certainly see here is whenever you have numbers that are sequential, numbers that are in a pattern, it means that there was a plan. There was a planner that Jesus, as Galatians said, came in the fullness of time. He came at exactly the right 
time. And even his genealogy shows order and intentionality and completeness. So that's the royal bloodline. You may have noticed in my, my title, though, is uh, the royal and repulsive bloodline of Jesus. Did you know there's a whole repulsive side of this bloodline? In fact, what is most surprising in this genealogy is that Matthew does the opposite of what all of the ancients typically did, and that is that they would sort of quietly remove the less savory members of the family tree, and they would highlight the more glamorous members of the family tree. Maybe you do the same. People say, hey, tell me about your family. Well, you don't start with your brother in jail. It's my sister. She's a surgeon, missionary in Africa, and has for 50 years right? You start with her. You don't start with, you know, we, we similarly, we want to, you know, make us, our, ourselves look good. We want to make our family look good, and we want to highlight the people that do that, and we sort of minimize the black sheep. Oh, yeah, there's this one sister, but I don't want to talk about her. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about, right? We, moderns do the same thing. Uh, for example, Hitler expunged certain aspects of his family tree that actually had a little bit of Jewishness in it, for obvious reasons. People change their name. If their name has some famous unsavory aspect to it, they'll say, I'm going to change my name. I don't want to be associated with that name. So we want to highlight what makes us look good and to hide what makes us look bad. And we look in the genealogy of Matthew, and he does neither of those. He just says, here it is, in all of its glory and all of its gore. And he seems to sort of go out of his way to highlight the distasteful and even the repulsive parts of Jesus' story. He highlights the skeletons in Jesus' closet. You say, well, I didn't see that when you read through that. Well, let's talk about it, okay? How about if we begin with the four women? He highlights four women in his genealogy, also unusual, by the way, but he highlights four women. Who were they? Well, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. Probably highlights them because they're outstanding examples of godly Jewish women. No, actually not. What do I mean? Who was Tamar? You can read this in Genesis. Tamar was Judah, the son of Jacob's daughter-in-law. And she pretended to be a prostitute so that her father-in-law would impregnate her, which he did by hiring her as his own prostitute, not knowing it was his daughter-in-law. Now that's a nice part of the story, don't you think? Let's highlight that. Let's put that on our Facebook page as a family. Just thought, oh, you should know this is what happened. Well, it's got to get better from here. Well, how about Rahab? Godly Jewish woman, no. She is a Gentile, and she is a prostitute. Apparently so well-known as a prostitute that when they were trying to find the spies, they just said, uh, the, the spies, they spent the night at Rahab's house, like men do. Everybody knew that she was a prostitute in Jericho. How about Ruth? Okay, now Ruth's a great story, book of the Bible named after her, but did you know that Ruth was not a Jew? She was a Moabite, and the Moabites were under the curse of God. 
Why would you highlight a son of Abraham, Messiah of the Jewish people, that he had a Moabite in the family story? Come on, Matthew, give us one good one. Bathsheba. Now there's a shining moment in the story, don't you think? Who was Bathsheba? Bathsheba was also not a Jew, probably a Hittite, and was the wife of one of David's best friends, a guy that fought for David and gave his life uh, for David. And David sees Bathsheba, you probably know the story, and it leads to an adulterous affair and a pregnancy and a murder. So Jesus, so nice to meet you. Tell us about your family. We just want to know about your family. Well, there were three Gentiles in the story. Three of my forefathers came from either prostitution or adultery. There were two prostitutes, one incestuous pregnancy, and one forefather came from a very famous adultery and murder. Oh, you don't say. Well, it, I mean, we all have black sheep in the family, don't we? I mean, the rest of the names in the list probably sort of balance out that negativity, don't you think? Well, I don't know. Let's go back to the list. Abraham was a liar. Isaac was a terrible father. Jacob was a coward and arguably a thief. Judah was immoral. Perez was the son of an incestuous prostitution. And we all know about David's sins. Ahaz was just plain evil. Manasseh was an idolater. Jeconia was cursed by the prophet Jeremiah. Do you get the idea? Or can I ask you, what does your family look like? What does your family tree look like? My family tree, uh, besides the glory of being Dutch, um, my dad, over the last several years, has been getting into genealogies. You know, you can buy these services online and you get access to, you know, databases and things like that. And my dad has done exhaustive study of our family all the way back to like a thousand. Okay, so long time. And he's found some very interesting things. In fact, I would call them shocking and lurid stories of sin, deception, abandonment of families, assumed identities, and my now-deceased grandma and grandfather apparently only pretending to be married and never actually doing so. Oh. <laughs> Did you hear that, congregation? <sighs> and their bloodline is in the pastor of our church. So say the Pharisees here. <laughs> What's your family tree look like? Forget the past. How about the present? Okay? How about the present? It's easy, I think, to look back in the branches of the tree and say those people were really sinful, right? What's your story like? Any unsavory chapters in your story? Maybe you're living one right now. Maybe you are the chapter that someday your kids will be embarrassed to tell. And maybe they already are. So Matthew, why put all these skeletons in, in this story? Why, why air the family dirty laundry? I mean, that's just not something we do. We don't talk about our families this way. Why fill 
the son of God's genealogy with sex, adultery, deception, prostitution, conspiracy, and murder. Why, Matthew, would you do that? And the reason that Matthew did that is because the royal line shows that he is a king, and the repulsive line shows that he is a savior. He came from sinners, and he came for sinners. Not just the righteous, good sort of people that don't have bad chapters in their story, but the kinds of people that are in his own family tree. And all of this is leading to what he says in verse 21 uh, regarding Jesus, that he came, you should call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The Son of God did not come from perfect people to save perfect people. He came from an incredibly lurid list of sinners in order to save incredibly lurid sinners like you and me. Okay? And we ought to be encouraged that Jesus' family looks a lot like our family. And his story looks a lot like our story. Sinful people just like us. And you might think, wow, wouldn't it be great I mean, talk about assurance of salvation. I mean, if you looked in the Bible and you saw that you were actually named in the genealogy of Jesus, I mean, talk about for sure going to heaven if I see my name in the genealogy of Jesus, actually, how did these people, how did these people, if they were, if they were saved, if they were forgiven, if they were given eternal life, how did they get that? The same way that you and I get it. By faith in Jesus. And they had promises, they had prophecies, they didn't know all the details that we know, but they had faith. And we know for Abraham, Paul talks about in Romans, that God reckoned it to him as righteousness. He believed. So David had to believe in Jesus, and Abraham had to believe in Jesus, and all the others here had to believe in Jesus in order to be saved. How were these people saved from their obvious sins? By faith in Christ, which means this, that you aren't saved by being a father of Jesus, but by being a follower of Jesus. You aren't saved by being in the genealogy, being a father. Even Mary and Joseph were saved by faith in Christ. There is no other name under heaven whereby men might be saved than the name of Jesus And even in the genealogy, this applies. All of them trusting in Christ. And in this, this is why we have such massive privilege over even these names in here. If I was to come to you and say, hey, would you rather be a name listed in the genealogy of Jesus or live today? I hope that every one of you would say, I would take today any day. Why? Because what did they know? They knew this much, and yet they believed. How much do we know? We know this much. We have privilege. We have the Gospels. We know the life of Jesus. We know his ministry. We have the apostles who tell us what it means. We have all of these massive privileges. That's why Jesus says about John the Baptist, there was never anybody greater than John, born of women, but the least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. What is he talking about? Are we better somehow morally cared to? No, but we have massive privilege to know the story of Jesus Far better to be a follower of Jesus than a father of Jesus. And I just wonder today if that is true for you. Are you a follower of Christ 
And maybe you look, you look at your life, you look at your family, you look at sort of your story, and you say, I'm not worthy of it. Or you look around a room like this, we're all gussied up or whatever, we took showers and came today, and it's like all these people, they all seem to have it all together, right? I'm not worthy, I'm not worthy, because I know the kind of sinner that I am. I want you to take an honest look at the genealogy of Jesus and realize that he came from sinners just like you, and he came for sinners just like you and me. There is nobody that is beyond the grace of God, and Matthew just pours that sin into the story so that we might realize that he did come to save sinners from their sins. His name is Jesus. He is the Christ. Okay? He is the Christ. I remember our Lake Michigan baptism this summer. One of the guys that we baptized, he, uh, he said to me, kind of pulled me aside, he goes, hey, he goes, when you baptize me, Keep me under the water a little bit longer. He said, I've been a very bad boy. The good news, friends, is that Jesus came for the bad boys. He came for the bad girls. He came from the bad boys, and he came for the bad boys. He came to save his people from their sins. And the ultimate question is, are you one of them? Are you a follower of Jesus the Messiah?